Should A.G. Becerra have assigned this investigation to the son of one of Powell's criminal deputies? No. Does it look like a cover-up? Yes. We find it particularly ironic that Harvey Zoll's one big defense win was getting a conviction overturned because the prosecutor and defense attorney didn't disclose their personal relationship. There was no proof that they did anything to hurt the defendant's case, but it raised serious questions about loyalty, bias, and appearance of conflict of interest. Where is Cliff Zoll's loyalty? With Oscar and the True Facts, or with his father and the Tulare DA's office? Is it reasonable to expect Cliff to find that Powell and his deputies committed acts of misconduct? No, it's stupid to even ask the question. What about bias? Is Cliff inclined to believe that Powell and Blyer told the truth, disclosed exculpatory evidence, and did not intimidate or coach witnesses? We would say yes, it would be hard for him to believe Oscar, and too easy for him to trust the DAs. Those were just our general concerns about Cliff working on the case. His response to our questions about these issues gave us more specific worries. He told us in writing that he had discussed the case with his father. That truly alarmed us. As you might guess, Cliff had a duty to consider only the actual facts and evidence as documented not his father's random, biased opinion about Oscar's guilt. Did Harvey tell Cliff that he knew of secret evidence of Oscar's guilt that the judge didn't let the jury hear? That's one of TCSO's favorite lies about the case. It's not true, obviously, but it works on people because it creates a nagging doubt. Nonspecific statements like that are highly effective because they can't be easily confronted, or disproven. So, did Harvey influence Cliff with tales of non-existent evidence against Oscar? We should not have to wonder. But, based on Harvey's record of dishonesty and Cliff's odd behavior, here we are. Does anyone believe that they discussed the case? Harvey had no opinion on Oscar's guilt, and he in no way tried to sway or influence Cliff's decisions. No, that's just not believable. Cliff also went out of his way to paint Harvey as a dedicated public defender, presumably so that we would not assume that Harvey had tainted Cliff with the prosecutor's view of Oscar's guilt. However, we soon discovered that was a less-than-honest portrayal of Harvey's record. He was such a strong supporter of the death penalty, he literally refused to defend clients who were appealing that sentence. And that specifically included Oscar. Yes, Harvey worked in both Powell's office during the trial and the state public defender's office while they handled the appeal of Oscar's death sentence. We believe that Harvey likely promised Cliff that no mistakes were made in Oscar's prosecution, that Harvey had personal knowledge of Oscar's guilt, and that he deserved the death penalty. We can't prove that, but it's the conclusion we reached based on Cliff's odd and contradictory statements. However, it doesn't really matter if that's exactly what happened. The doubt it brings to Cliff's objectivity is the reason that every bar association in the country requires full disclosure of all potential conflicts of interest. Of course, all that made us curious about Cliff, his own personal biases. He seemed particularly focused on the idea that Brent Trueblood was wrong or lying 
and that he hadn't seen Oscar during the freezer loading like he told TCSO Chamberlain. We explained Bill Rose's sworn statements that nobody else was working on his house in December of 1975, and the consistency between Brent and Oscar's description of the way the truck was parked, the loading of the stove parts, and even Oscar's coveralls that were collected with his white sweater during the search of his bedroom. It didn't matter. Cliff insisted that the Mascoros were more believable than Trueblood. What Cliff didn't say was that he knew Brent Trueblood. They went to DeVisadero Junior High School together, and in fact, they were in the same class. Why did Cliff insist on siding against Brent Trueblood? We don't know, and again, we don't care. His personal feelings have no place in an objective review of the case. All of the details in Trueblood's statements are verified by other independent sources, and he picked Oscar's photo from the lineup. Trueblood and his family had no connection to anyone in the case or motive to lie. The objective facts cast no doubt on Trueblood's credibility or reliability, so we have to assume that Cliff injected some kind of personal bias against him in his review of the evidence. The Zolls lived right in the middle of the VR zone, and Cliff and his brother went to school with the victims and their families. Harvey grew up in Tulare and presumably knew a lot of people in the area. How many of the case witnesses and TCSO officers did the Zolls know personally? We don't know, because not one single bit of this was disclosed, not in any way. We expect that Cliff never imagined that we would ever find out that he or his father had any personal connection to Vesalia, the DA's office, or Oscar's appeals. If we hadn't been doing a deep look into Brent Blyer, we never would have known about the Zolls. The news stories about the Consumer Protection Division connected Blyer and Zoll, which was an unusual name. We had to start digging. We were able to find more information in the Tulare and Visalia papers and then saw the LA Times and Sacramento Bee. Those gave us more clues that led us to the law library and old copies of the LA Daily Journal on microfilm. The law library had the most unexpected piece of information, the fact that Jay Powell had fired Harvey and then gone out of his way to make sure that the Senate Rules Committee knew all of the details during Harvey's confirmation hearings in 1989. Right off, it was really clear that Cliff should not be anywhere near a case that involved Powell. This is a classic conflict of interest. No matter what Cliff decided, it would look bad. If he found prosecutor and police misconduct in Oscar's case, it would appear that he had a vendetta and was getting back at them for firing his dad. However, by covering for Tulare County, now it looks like he's trying to make sure his father's misconduct is never made public. By rubber stamping Oscar's CIR and hiding D'Angelo's crimes, Cliff effectively covered up his father's wrongdoing and deflected the public's attention away from revelations that could be embarrassing for him within the AG's office. It's also possible that Harvey helped prosecute innocent men that D'Angelo framed for burglaries he was committing, and the Zolls are hoping that by burying Oscar's wrongful conviction, there won't be any investigation into the other cases involving D'Angelo's framing. Seriously, how many men did D'Angelo frame 
for his own crimes. Does Harvey Zoll have actual knowledge of additional innocent men he helped send to jail or prison? Is it possible that Cliff did absolutely nothing wrong and that he truly believes that Ward's report is true and there is sufficient evidence to support Oscar's conviction? No. We know for sure he's aware the DOJ report on the DNA does not implicate Oscar or exculpate D'Angelo, and the source of the alleles was not semen. Cliff also knows, for certain, that Ward did not have the transcripts and lied about it in his report. He even listened to Ward and Alavesos' interview with the Exeter Sun in the paper trail. Cliff also claimed that he's aware of all of the exculpatory evidence we've listed here and understands that it was not included in the review for actual innocence or Ward's report to the Attorney General. Instead of ordering a DOJ investigation, he told us to, quote, take it to the court of public opinion. Obviously, the rules of professional conduct for attorneys requires full disclosure of any real or perceived conflicts of interest. That means personal relationships with any party to the case, knowledge of the case from sources outside the official record, and any personal interest in the outcome. It's easier to think about it if you imagine Cliff as a potential juror on Oscar's case. Would the son of a criminal prosecutor in Powell's office be seated on Oscar's jury? No, of course not. What if he admitted knowing eyewitnesses and said that he would or would not believe them no matter what? Would it be okay if the prosecutor had dirt on his father and he was afraid it might come out if he voted for innocence? Again, no. Cliff was in the position to decide whether or not there was a real investigation into Oscar's innocence and D'Angelo as a suspect. He was both juror and judge in the CIR. Instead of disclosing these conflicts, he tried to conceal and then minimize them. That was neither honest nor fair. Cliff Saul also tried to hide behind procedure, saying time and again all he could do was review procedural issues, like abuse of discretion or process violations in the CIR. We argued that that was the incorrect standard to apply to claims of actual innocence and that D.A. Ward made appalling and unconstitutional procedural errors in his inquiry and report. The three most significant ones are also the easiest to understand. Again, the 1965 conviction was ruled inadmissible at trial because the judge decided that it had nothing to do with the facts of the case. It could not help the jury understand what happened on 122675. It did not speak to motive, since the 1965 allegations did not involve sexual touching, undressing, or comments. The jury simply inferred that if Oscar were to have taken her under the bridge, the motive would have been a sexual assault. Procedurally, D.A. Ward may not now rely on inadmissible evidence to support Oscar's conviction. That's the law, plain and simple. But Cliff still couldn't seem to find any violation. There is one other interesting aspect of the 1965 case that seems relevant here. When we first spoke to the woman on the beach, she mentioned an incident with Bob Bird from 1976. She said that Bird had called her and told her that she was going to have to testify against Oscar at the upcoming trial. She told him that if she did, 
she would tell the truth about what happened, which she described as, quote, nothing much. She said she'd been leaving the beach when she saw Oscar walking toward her. She was startled and slipped on the hill. She then heard Stanley Miller calling her to come up to his truck, so she did. She denied that she'd been jumped on, held down, spoken to by Oscar, or injured in any way. She said TCSO talked to her and that she rode her bike home. She described the call from Bird as extremely upsetting, and she felt he was threatening her. She was not contacted again and never received a subpoena to testify at the 1976 trial. That seemed like an impossible story to check out, but Bird had to make a record of the call because it was long distance. He called her on February 19, 1976. He wrote that she was, quote, reluctant to testify, but gave the impression that she would. And then at the bottom it says, quote, case closed pending court action. The court held a hearing on the question of admitting the 1965 case, but the DA did not subpoena the young woman. Normally, her testimony would have been key in getting the judge to agree to admit the conviction at trial, but that never happened. We can't prove what she told Bird on the phone, but we believe her, and the fact that she was not subpoenaed supports her version of the events. Everything she told us about being pressured in her home, her mother's home, and at the DA's office is also supported by TCSO's own records. There is no question in our minds that the entire case was manufactured by Bob Bird. Another procedural issue that only got a vague shrug from Cliff was DA Ward's continued reliance on destroyed evidence to support the conviction. This is a clear due process violation. So if you're stuck on procedure, it's not something you could ever look past. The case law on this issue has a long history, and it's usually a difficult standard to meet, but not here. Generally, to prevent evidence being used to obtain or support a conviction, the defense needs to show one of two things. The evidence possessed an exculpatory value that was apparent before the evidence was destroyed and the defendant would be unable to obtain comparable evidence by other reasonably available means. Or, if the missing evidence is not, quote, apparently exculpatory, but simply potentially useful evidence, due process is not violated unless law enforcement acted in bad faith in destroying it or losing it. Case law involving the intentional destruction of evidence by members of law enforcement is almost non-existent because it's a crime for them to do so. There is no precedent for this situation where three members of law enforcement intentionally destroyed all of the physical evidence in a capital murder case five months after the defendant was sent to death row. They did it in defiance of state law and two valid court orders to preserve the evidence. Obviously, Byrd knew that the evidence was exculpatory. Either the sample of Donna's pubic hair didn't really contain semen, the killer had type A blood, or he was a non-secretor. The Sacramento Sheriff's Office had identified the EAR as a type A non-secretor three weeks before Bird issued the first destruction order. Blake's sample could not have belonged to Oscar, and it pointed directly to a suspect that VPD had connected to the kidnapping and homicide at the Snelling home three months before Donna was killed. However, None of that should have really mattered to Cliff because it was clear that the evidence was destroyed in bad faith. Several of the factors laid out to prove 
bad faith in prior court cases are present here. Bird, Johnson, and Levitt knew that they had a duty to preserve the evidence. The destruction was intentional, not accidental. They violated clear and unambiguous TCSO procedures. It was done to prevent other law enforcement jurisdictions from testing the evidence against their cases and or outside testing by Oscar. And finally, they had no innocent explanation for disposing of the evidence. The remedy for such a due process violation is that DA Ward may not rely on any of the destroyed evidence to support Oscar's conviction, period. The third procedural issue that should have prompted action by Cliff involves major failures in the chain of custody for key evidence. Even if you were to believe Laverne Lamb's story about finding Donna's pants in the road, Bird broke chain of custody on them by failing to promptly turn them in to evidence custody. Promptly would be within 24 hours. He held on to them for 11 days. Unfortunately, chain of custody was also broken when Donna's body was transported to Exeter Hospital and then to the funeral home. Although we know the names of the two specific employees that removed Donna's body from Neil Ranch, they were not documented in any TCSO report, nor was there any written record regarding the person or persons who did the x-rays at the hospital. Evidence could have been lost, accidentally introduced, or altered. There is no report that shows that a TCSO deputy accompanied them and remained with Donna's body at all times. We have never seen or heard any evidence that suggests that happened. Procedurally, what actually occurred doesn't really enter into the discussion. All that matters is that the chain of custody was not properly documented in writing. Because there's no record of official custody, there is uncertainty about who had access to the evidence and exactly what happened between Neil Ranch and when TCSO Johnson arrived to find Donna's body already at the funeral home. We covered some of these possibilities in episode 24. Since D.A. Ward cannot meet the required standard for chain of custody on Donna's body and her pants, the evidence is inadmissible, and Ward may not refer to it or rely on it to sustain Oscar's conviction. Those are the rules. If Clifford wanted to argue that proper procedures control, then he was required to order that Ward remove from his report all references to the 1965 conviction, evidence collected at autopsy, Donna's pants and Lamb's testimony about them, and all of the evidence destroyed by TCSO in 1977. That would be the proper procedure. In reality, Cliff refused to follow the standard for both actual innocence and procedural due process. He just plain refused to meet any of his duties under the law. Cliff is also bound by most of the rules of professional conduct that we discussed in episode 34. He may not ignore evidence of actual innocence. He must undertake further investigation to determine if Oscar was convicted of an offense he did not commit. All that is required is that the evidence of innocence is credible and that it creates a reasonable likelihood of innocence. We're not talking about proof beyond a reasonable doubt. 
There is no question that Cliff was duty-bound to order a full investigation into D'Angelo as an alternate suspect and official misconduct by Byrd, Johnson, Powell, and Blyer. But of course, here we are again, right back at Cliff's father, Harvey. Both Ward and Cliff Saul were duty-bound to inform the Superior Court and seek a hearing with sworn testimony. It's right there in the Rules of Professional Conduct. It's not optional, it's required. Ward, Elevezos, and Cliff Saul should all be in front of the state bar court and facing discipline for their actions in this case. If only Oscar were alive to file a complaint or seek a court hearing. But he's not, and that's why they believe they can get away with their misconduct. The amount of lying here is just staggering. We're angry and exhausted. We have to remind ourselves that we know good, honest police officers and prosecutors who would never do the things we've documented in the podcast. However, bad apples really do spoil the whole barrel. And what we've seen of TCSO and the Tulare DA's office has been nothing but rotten. Apparently, the bad apples also don't fall far from the rotten tree. D'Angelo committed hundreds of burglaries, dozens of rapes, kidnappings, attempted murders, and murders while he was working for Roseville, Exeter, and Auburn PDs. Was there any investigation into him when he was arrested, fired, and convicted in 1979? Apparently not. Police and prosecutors simply cannot be trusted to investigate themselves or each other. The instinct to close ranks and ignore misconduct is just too great. On September 19, 2020, Paul Holes was quoted in the Australian Daily Telegraph as saying, quote, Even with what's out there in the public, I will tell you that pales in comparison to the totality of the crimes he committed. So law enforcement has a reasonable belief that D'Angelo is responsible for other crimes, and in two and a half years, they filed exactly zero new charges? You know what a normal plea agreement in a serial case looks like? The defendant admits to every single crime he committed and leads authorities to any missing victims. In exchange, no new charges are added and the death penalty is taken off the table. If it is later determined that the defendant admitted a criminal act in the plea, that crime can still be charged. In fact, that's exactly what happened to Robert Yates in Spokane, Washington. He lied and failed to disclose a homicide which was later connected to him through DNA. He was charged, convicted, and given the death sentence despite the earlier plea deal that had spared him. So why did the DAs give D'Angelo a deal that took the death penalty off the table, but didn't make him take responsibility for all his crimes during the sentencing hearing? Why were his other victims denied the opportunity to confront him in court, and give their victim impact statements? We all know the answer. The truth is so awful that law enforcement and prosecutors want to cover it up. They're hoping that they can send D'Angelo to prison and nobody will ever talk about him or his crimes ever again. Why did the judge cut off Victor Hayes when he started talking about D'Angelo using his badge to hurt people? We've asked it before, and we're sure we'll ask it again. Where is the independent investigation into D'Angelo's crimes and the use of his law enforcement authority and resources 
and how many times was he dismissed as a suspect or identified and covered for by other members of law enforcement? Where is the transparency? If there is nothing to hide, why are they working so hard to keep this information sealed? And no, we don't trust the FBI or any of the jurisdictions involved with the EAR task force. We know for a fact that they lied about having proof that the VR was not the EAR. They knew for certain that the prowler that VPD looked at in 1976 had been cleared, yet they continued to say he was the ransacker. There is absolutely no question in our minds that they gave D'Angelo many years of freedom, and he could have easily been stopped as early as 1977. We didn't figure this out. We simply talked to Sergeant Vaughn and Investigator Poole. They had been trying to get the FBI and task force to pay attention to the ransacker for 40 years. All we did was take the additional time to review the investigations into Donna and Jennifer's homicides. Exeter was clearly and obviously the missing piece. Again, we added D'Angelo to our low-priority suspect list on February 28, 2017, so we have to assume that law enforcement could have easily found him with the smallest coordinated effort. Agent McGowan would have been available to identify him, and D'Angelo's unique non-secretor and PGM-type combination would have been close to the certainty of a DNA match. Instead, the Sacramento Sheriff went out of his way to make sure that Sergeant Vaughn was punished and barred from raising a VR-EAR connection. How did Sacramento Sheriff's Office miss the fact that the same day that Lieutenant Root told the B that the EAR had not killed Drs. Offerman and Manning and Galita, the Smiths were killed in an identical attack? Seriously, within hours of the publication of the Sheriff's stupid statement, another couple was killed, and nobody noticed? D'Angelo was literally jumping up and down, waving his arms, screaming, Look at me, I'm here! And nobody in law enforcement put it together. Really, we don't buy that for a second. Sacramento Sheriff Lowy was obsessed with the narrative that the EAR was not a murderer. And that's why Rodney Miller's shooting and the Missouri homicides were not investigated as EAR crimes and no warnings were given to the public. The incompetence and arrogance in these cases is staggering, just off the charts bad. They dismissed investigative leads simply to prove their own theories, to minimize the crimes, help their own re-elections, and to avoid working with other law enforcement agencies. Has this behavior stopped with D'Angelo's arrest and conviction? No. No. 